good that you're listening to Tom Elliott's podcast of the Twilight Zone. It's real good. But he's a bad man. He's a very bad man. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Way back in 2011, the Twilight Zone companion author Mark Scott Zickery became the first guest to be interviewed on the Twilight Zone podcast. Not a bad get for a young podcast that was still trying to find its feet. Then in 2013, I welcomed the wonderful Anne Sailing to the show to talk about her book, As I Knew Him, My Dad, Rod Sailing. And I thought to myself, I've just spoken to Rod Sailing's daughter. How can I top that? Well, it's not necessarily about topping it, but building upon it, and build upon it we did. We forged a strong bond with the Rod Serling Memorial Foundation and its president Nick Parisi has been a regular guest on this show. And whenever there's been a new Twilight Zone book of note like Steve Rubin's Twilight Zone Encyclopedia or a comic book like David Avalone's Twilight Zone The Shadow, it's this show that they'd come on to to discuss it. I've spoken to Carl Armari, the creator of Twilight Zone Radio, and I spoke to a room full of Twilight Zone writers at Sailing Fest in 2019 to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the show. And when the television Twilight Zone came back in 2019, it was this podcast that executive producer Wynne Rosenfeld and the rest of the executive producers chose to come on to to talk about the new show. And these are only some of the names who have come on to celebrate Rod Sailing's life and achievements, which isn't a bad guest roster for a podcast about a 60-year-old show whose cast members have been sadly becoming fewer and fewer as the years go by. And because of this, I never really thought that I'd ever actually speak to an actual Twilight Zone cast member. But I was wrong, because on the 21st of January 2020, I welcomed to the Twilight Zone podcast, the great Earl Holloman, the first actor to ever appear on screen in the Twilight Zone. It was at this point that I started to feel that maybe this was mission accomplished. And that doesn't mean that I'd never have another guest on the show, but... After speaking with Earl Holloman, where do you really go from there? Well, there was one person. Because if I'd spoken to the first man standing in the Twilight Zone, for this project to truly be complete, I wanted to speak to the man who will likely be the last man standing, the great Bill Moomy. And tonight, that dream comes true. Now many of us will have seen or heard Bill Moomy in interviews and he is a great teller of stories and anecdotes to the point where 45 minutes just really isn't enough. But when you get a chance to speak with the great man, you work with what you're given. But luckily, 
we can take as much time as we need to check out even more stories from Bill Moomy's life because he's written a book full of them. And that's where our chat begins. So Bill, I'd just like to start with a very open question. You know, we're here to talk about your new autobiography. So tell us about the book. It had been something that that people had suggested I do for many years. And I, I, I either I resisted it or it resisted me. Mm-hmm. Um, but but during the recent lockdown, I've I've been working mostly out of my house and I've been pretty cautious to to, you know, hang out or gig anymore. I'm kind of on a hiatus from my social gatherings. Mm -hmm. And uh, I I became quite prolific. I've recorded quite a few different musical projects. And um, I thought, well, now is a decent time to see if uh, if it'll flow. And I made the decision to to not write it, you know, linear, to, to let it be a modular kind of reality, because that's that's the way my memory works anyway. I don't I don't think chronologically, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll I'll look back on a certain memory. It might be 50 years ago or it might be five days ago. But, you know, they segue in and out. So I started writing the book that way and it, it flowed very quickly. I think the whole thing was completed within uh, a little under six months of writing almost every day, which I guess is pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's about 450 pages, no ghostwriter or partner working with me. Um, I, I got some feedback from some people I respect on an early edition. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and, and uh, the publisher, uh, Next Chapter, uh, they were able to clear 250 photographs that represent the bulk of, you know, the various projects I've worked on uh-huh. in so many different arenas over the decades. I've been very fortunate uh, that my career has had this connectivity between golden age television, working with classic movie stars and directors from the 30s and 40s into the 60s pop era, you know, with Lost in Space and everything kind of being campy and brighter than you can imagine, that whole psychedelic 60s thing, and then segueing into the 70s kind of indulgent, trippy, uh, you know, artist-friendly world and into the corporate world that I guess we're kind of working with in the arts mostly today. Mm -hmm. And between acting, writing, comic books, my music, uh, and production stuff, I've really been able to connect with so many different appendages of show business that uh, it's never really gotten boring for me. I was actually just thinking about that while I was preparing for the interview because you must be one of the select few who have worked through all of the ages of television, so it makes a lot of sense for you to write this book. But also, this is your life, and that, of course, can be very personal. So so how did it feel to bring up some of the more personal stuff? Most of the memories uh, make, me feel, make me feel really good. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the memories are uh, opening open up some wounds emotionally. Some of them, uh, you know, I didn't sugarcoat my stories in the book and mm-hmm. and of co- of course i think the the majority of what's in the book is is about entertainment that people can relate to that they're familiar with but there's also a lot of personal stories of you know things like happen when you're a teenager or 
lost loves and mm. things like that along the way. So, you know, when you open yourself up to, to, to doing that, again, I, I didn't want to, uh, to sugarcoat stuff. And I also didn't want to be, uh, you know, exploiting anybody, yeah. but uh, it's pretty raw. So, I mean, I ran the gamut of emotions while uh, writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, but my wife was okay with it all and happy with, with most all of it. And she's been very supportive and, you know, that's important. Now, some of your title, uh, your chapter titles I've got here, Once a Comic Geek, The Force is Strong. And what I always enjoy when I see you in interviews, Bill, is that, you know, you're as big a geek as any of us about stuff. You know, you you're a big fan of a, a lot of things. What are some of the things that you're Oh my gosh, of? you know, I, I have that collector's virus and I've had it since I was a little boy, <laughs> whether it's Pez dispensers or uh, I, right before mm-hmm. our connection here, I was on the phone uh, talking with a comic book dealer across the country about some, you know, old golden age comic books I'd like to purchase. Um, I, I love old comic books. Uh, I have I have a lot mm-hmm. of of guitars, but I I don't like to think of musical instruments as a collection. I'm indulgent with the fact that you know they all have different tones, and I'll connect with them for different mm-hmm. moods. But of course, I accept the fact that I could also just get by with you know one nice acoustic and a, you know, a, a, a Telecaster or something, but I do have quite a lot of musical instruments and uh, I appreciate, I appreciate all of my materials stuff. I, I know it's just stuff, but I do get passionate about it and mm. uh, I enjoy it. And I collect um, ever since I was a, a young boy working on, on projects, television and films, I would get autographs. And I found that as I, as I, you know, got old, uh, I would still, I would still get, you know, uh, musical heroes and things like that. I would try to get their autographs and add them to my world. So I, I completely understand the mindset of, of nerds. I think it's just part of being a geek, isn't it? We all have that collector mentality about us. I don't think, I don't think there's a be- a bigger geek in the world than Mark Hamill and I. I mean, Mark <laughs> is a huge, Mark is a huge collector and always has been. And we've been friends for 40 years. And uh, Mark wrote a little blurb for the back of my book, which was very appreciated. Okay. But, but he and I, uh, over the decades, would, you know, we'd put on baseball hats and maybe a pair of sunglasses and we'd go to all the little uh, comic book conventions around Southern California and we'd just sneak in and we'd, we'd hunt our books. And anyway, there's some stories in the book about, about Mark and I uh, collecting and being, <laughs> it's, being in some interesting uh, situations, you know. You know, I know music is a huge part of your life, but you were in show business when people like the Beatles were around, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, you know, all these classic bands did you get to interact with any of those people at that time i mean you know i saw hendrix twice i've seen the stones a million times i i uh i saw zeppelin the the worst i i played with ringo um and his all-stars uh five years ago at the greek theater uh-huh. uh, i came up and played played guitar and sang on with a little help from my friends and uh, give peace a chance, which mm-hmm. was just a wonder, wonderful experience. Probably the, you know, the, the most fab experience I've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> but he, the worst that I can share is that in 1965, 
the, the Beatles were playing the Hollywood Bowl, and I was invited with Angela Cartwright, who played, you know, Penny in Lost in Space, my sister in Lost in Space. Mm-hmm. Angela and I were invited to, to the meet and greet and gig. And I didn't go. I didn't go. Oh. <laughs> I, I, I very clearly remember. And I was a Beatles fan. I mean, I had all the records. But I remember saying, I don't want to be with 15,000 screaming kids listening to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so I stayed home and I, I was a folky snob when I was like 11 years old. I loved the Beatles, but still mm-hmm. I, I stayed home and I listened to Pete Seeger and the Kingston trio and, and Angela went to the, the gig and the meet and greet. And she has this fabulous photograph of all four Beatles sitting on stools and she's reaching out to shake John's hand and George is kind of like checking <laughs> her out. And, and I know that I'm supposed to have been right behind her, <laughs> but, uh, but I, I, I blew that one. That that's, and it's, you know, I can honestly say that's one of the top regrets of my entire life. Mm. So if that's the, if that's one of the biggest regrets of my life, I'm okay. Right. I have the record. I have the records. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to reading about your experiences making the Twilight Zone and making Lost in Space. And these are things that you're often asked about, but are there any Bill Moomy performances that you can recommend to us that you were really happy with, but perhaps they slipped under the radar a little and you think, you know, I kind of wish more people had seen that one. Uh, well, sure. I think there are plenty of those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I starred in Stanley Kramer's film, Bless the Beasts and Children, mm-hmm. which was released in 1971. And um, it, it originally kind of came and went. It was re-released within the, the by the end of that year packaged with another film and it and, and it made some money then but that was a an important film for me because it was the first time i was venturing into an adult type role mm. i mean he was still a, he was still a kid but he was driving he was handling weapons and it was it was it, it was a film with a purpose I created a television series that ran that was originally a Nickelodeon kid series called Space Cases in uh, the late 90s that ran on in 57 different countries. Uh, and we did two seasons of that. I wish that had stayed on longer. I thought that was a really good show and I was happy in that gig as a writer and creator. But probably, just to sound silly, but uh, and I, I'm not sure if it's popular in Europe, I would think it is. Mm-hmm. I did two episodes of a half hour episodic show in the sixties called bewitched, right? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. With, with Elizabeth Montgomery. Well, the second one of those episodes, I played her husband as a kid. Uh, Agnes Moorhead turned Darren, which was uh, Dick York, mm-hmm. the original Darren uh, into a child. So I was the guest star in that episode playing her husband as a child. And I saw that not too long ago. And I thought, man, mommy, you know what? You really nailed that. <laughs> you had you had all his mannerisms down. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good comedic performance by me. And I had such a crush on her as a kid, right? <laughs> that to pl- that that to play the husband and have her kiss me and mm-hmm. and all of that stuff, that that remains even though it's just a half hour show and it's a light show, 
uh, in tone. Uh, that's one of my very, very favorite perform Billy Mooney performances. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've probably been asked this a million times, Bill, but a Twilight Zone crowd, I think, is always going to want to know this. Um, you met Rod Sailing. Can you share some of your memories of him with us? I can, and I will. Okay. Uh, what made the biggest impression on me when I first met Rod Serling, which was during the episode of Long Distance Call, mm -hmm. which is one of, as you know, I'm sure, and most of your audience probably knows, it's only one of six Twilight Zones that were um, recorded on videotape as opposed to being shot on film mm -hmm. because somebody at CBS and their endless, you know, network wisdom decided that that would save them some money to, to work on video. So that episode was filmed like a soap opera, like a play, mm. almost like a live, like a live show. In other words, we do the whole first act, you know, you would re rehearse for several days, then you would tape for several days. And, uh, when, when, uh, Mr. Serling came onto the set, I was very impressed with the fact, even though I was a kid, little mm -hmm. kid, but I was very impressed with the fact that I noticed everybody, all the heads of all the different departments, the prop department, the cameraman, uh, lighting guys, wardrobe people, they were all really um, happy that the creator producer was on the set. Uh, as opposed to sometimes, you know, like on Lost in Space, Irwin Allen would come onto the set every day and everybody in the crew and the cast would kind of like, oh, you know, attention, he's here. Like, okay, everybody be be good now. Whereas uh, it was it was very relaxed when Rod Serling um, was on stage. And he had a very light attitude. It wasn't dark or acerbic or stolid it was it was light it was happiness he was cool everybody was happy to see him he was happy to talk about yeah next week we're going to want this and that and yeah can you get me some you know outfits from this era and he was very easy to hang with um mm -hmm. of course of course i watched him do his his intros which were just great uh but that was a at least from my understanding, you know, that was a character that he put on. And as soon as those bumpers were, were done, you know, he was back to being that light, easygoing guy. Um, of course, I did those three episodes for him, Long Distance Call, It's a Good Life, and In Praise of Pip uh, over the course of a couple of years. So I was grateful to see that, you know, he obviously – liked my work and, and continued to, to, to bring me into the show. And there's a difference between being seven and nine, yeah. my perspective of my perspective of him, you know, matured a bit by the time we got to in praise of Pip. Um, it's not like he and I went out for martinis when, <laughs> when we wrapped, when we wrapped everything, but I, I just recall having a little more interactions with him as I, as I got older, mm -hmm. uh, Going back to long distance call, one of my memories is we were rehearsing the, the, the final dramatic scene in that episode where my character, Billy Bales, is perceived to be drowned. He might not recover. And the, the, uh, the, the father, played by Philip Abbott, uh, picks up the toy telephone and pleads with uh, his dead mother, if she's there or not, to to spare little Billy's life because he has uh, 
so much life yet to experience. Mm-hmm. I remember very clearly that uh, Mr. Serling was not happy with that speech. He, he felt like this can be better. Mm. And, and everything stopped on the set for a good, I would say, 45 minutes. And he kind of hunkered off into a corner. I'm not sure if it was Charles Beaumont. I'm not sure exactly, but the screen, the co-writer of that project or the, who got credit for that episode, he and that writer sat alone for 45 minutes, completely rewrote that speech, that the father's speech, wow. came back, and it was just gold, you know? I mean, it was, it was, an, it was an incredible improvement. Not that it wasn't good to begin with, yeah. but it was it was it was beautiful, and uh, it was so interesting. Even as a little seven year old kid, because I had been working, mm-hmm. you know, quite a quite a bit before that. Not not too much, but I had been working quite a bit before that. And to see that that kind of magic happen uh, instantaneously, almost was very impressive. You know, Rod Serling had this iambic pentameter this rhythm to his words and and uh, you can recognize his dialogue really anywhere mm-hmm. and it's just uh, it, it was so beautiful and the other thing that i will say about you know watching him which is is sad is um you know he was he never d- didn't have a lit cigarette in his hand mm-hmm. i mean he was he was constantly smoking most everybody you know in, in that era smoked and of course a lot of those television shows were sponsored by tobacco companies in the united states so mm-hmm. uh if anything they may be even more encouraged to have smoked in those days but uh i was aware long before the news that he had passed away i was it was in my mind that man that guy just chain smokes you know mm-hmm. and that was such a, such an early loss it's it's a shame Absolutely. Because he was so, so talented. And, and again, he was, I, I saw him to be a very light, happy, pleasant guy to hang out with, to work for, hang yeah. out with. Is, <laughs> is pushing the envelope of my relationship a little bit. It's such a dark episode, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very powerful drama. And uh, uh, my mother almost didn't let me accept that job. Mm. I remember, I mean, we, I talk about all the episodes in the book, but um, she was a little spooked by the fact that, you know, the character walks out into traffic, the character jumps into this pond and, and seemingly drowns. And, and there was a, I guess she had some recalcitrant thoughts that perhaps that might give me an idea if, mm-hmm. if, if I wanted something and I didn't get it. She always said to me, I almost didn't let you do that one. So, um, you know, I'm very glad that she did because if I hadn't done that one, I might not have done yeah. the others. And, and certainly it's a good life is, uh, is probably the, the strongest of the three. Mm. Uh, it certainly has, it certainly has resonated the most and, and it's been, you know, kind of deemed a classic television show and yeah. being able to do the sequel to it's a good life 40 years later with Cloris Leachman once again, mm-hmm. and my own daughter, uh, Liliana Mumi, um, to be able to do that 
was really what an incredible way to kind of almost button the whole career. If I'd never done anything after that, mm. that might've been enough to just say, that's cool. Okay. <laughs> the original episode itself does tie wonderfully into your love of comic books, doesn't it? Because you've often said that you loved playing Anthony as a kid because he was a kid with superpowers. Oh, absolutely. Um, Look, Anthony Fremont was the most powerful mutant in the universe. Mm -hmm. He literally, he took his little community and erased the rest of reality. Either he took that community and created another pocket universe where it Mm -hmm. stood alone, or he he erased everything else. Uh, I'll leave that up to the scholars to decide. (laughs) But, you know, one of the, the, the most important things about Anthony that uh, is very obvious in the original episode is he's constantly scanning these thoughts. You know, it's like, Mm. it's like radio channels just changing constantly. And he's picking up this stuff where, who said that, you know, where, who, Oh, I don't, uh, you know, it's a, it's a great character. And uh, I have held a bit of Anthony inside of me ever since then i remember i no seriously i remember driving home from work while we were filming that show Mm. and you know what was i seven um but i remember like consciously you know thinking i was using anthony's powers to make the stoplights go green (laughs) so that we'd we'd get home soon enough you know so i'd go out and play with my friends before it got too dark or whatever but i do remember using anthony's power and believe me i've been i've sent a lot of people to the cornfield over the last 50 years whether they knew it or not Mm -hmm. and then obviously there is in praise of pip which stars one of my favorite twilight zone actors the, the great jack klugman I don't think it gets any better than working with Cloris Leachman. Mm. Um, but working with Jack was, was up in that, on that level, uh, such a sweet man and such a passionate actor. And what a gentleman mm-hmm. we, we filmed most of that outside at an amusement park in Santa Monica that we, you know, had, production had taken over for a couple of nights and it was creepy, you know, cause this wasn't, you weren't on stage 11, you know, on the lot, you were out in this real like house of mirrors mm-hmm. uh, and things like that. You, you know, you're out there, it's creaky and it's creepy and it's night and it's foggy. And uh, you know, you're doing this dramatic stuff where I'm playing a ghost and I remember thinking, wow, this is this is pretty intense, especially uh, when I'm leading him through the house of mirrors, mm. because, you know, as Pip the ghost boy, I'm basically what they wanted as much as possible. Uh, they kind of wanted me to just be floating through there. You know, they didn't want to see a lot of bounce in my step. And um, obviously they didn't want to see me looking for they had little silver pieces of tape mm-hmm. on the mirrors. So if I would see a piece of tape out of my peripheral vision, or maybe I'd, I'd check it, but you know, I would see that and that would tell me, okay, this is the mirror you're going to go to next. Then this one, then because obviously they don't want you looking around like you're, mm-hmm. uh, and the first couple of times we shot that, I 
bumped into the wrong mirror more than once, you know, and it was like, whoa, this is creepy. So there's this, uh, I, I, but I digress. There's, <laughs> there's, the, there's the scene where uh, he first makes contact with, with Pip mm. and he, he just, he hugs him and kisses him. And, and it's like, you're here, Pip. How come, how come you're here? And, but, you know, and, and both my parents uh, were at those shoots. N- normally, uh, it was just my mom who came to the, the set with me, unless we were doing Westerns, because my father was a, a rancher and a cowboy. And uh, so if we were doing, I was doing a Western with horses and things outside, then my dad would go. Mm -hmm. But basically it was just my mom. And on these two nights where we were shooting outside at this uh, amusement park, which was quite close to our home, maybe 15 minutes from where we lived, uh, both my parents came. And, And Jack Klugman walked over to my dad and my mom, Mm -hmm. and he introduced himself to them. And he very generously explained that in this scene we're about to shoot, you must understand, this is, this is my little boy come back to life. And I am going to hug him and I am going to kiss him. And I just want you to be okay with that. And to understand that, there, you know, I mean, even then it was it was just so generous of him to kind of explain the level of emotion that he was going to bring to this shot. Of course, my parents were like, yeah, we get it. It's brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And uh, it was I, I'll never forget that. It was really sweet of him to do that. Mm-hmm. And he really did slobber all over me. You know, I mean, it was he he. He followed through with, with, with great passion, which was so perfect for that, that show and that scene. And he was a wonderful man. We, we reconnected many years later. My son, Seth, when he was very young, had a career in, in films mm-hmm. between the ages of like five and nine. And then he decided he didn't, that wasn't the path he wanted to stay on. Um, but he did a movie with Jack Klugman. Uh, it was called Dear God with Greg Kinnear. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, he did this film. And uh, I went to the, the, the rap party and, and Jack Klugman was there. And he and I had such a lovely time reminiscing about In Praise of Pip and being, um, I don't really like to use this word, but being proud of that show. Yeah. You know, it, it was the second American television episodic that uh, addressed Americans uh, being killed in Vietnam. Uh, I believe there was an episode of a television show called Route 66 that did it first. But I had always, for, for years, I had been saying, you know, oh, that was the first. But I corrected myself, and it, I believe it's the second. Mm-hmm. But um, we were very proud of that. And, and of course... You know, Rod Serling's script is just so Im- beautiful. It's impeccable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was good. It was, you know, I, those Twilight Zones, and I've done a lot of television, I've done a lot of film, but those really have held up, you know. Yeah. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I, I had those opportunities. And you mentioned coming back for It's Still a Good Life. 
so when you when you're coming back to that character and you're trying to decide okay where is he now you know what what's he doing what's his headspace like you know what what was that process for bringing him back uh well i'll, I'll tell you iris stephen bear who is my neighbor and our children went to school together he was the executive producer of uh that rendition that version of the twilight zone and he also uh, produced star trek deep space nine which he cast me in an episode of which i was very happy to do as well ira came to me when they offered him the job of executive producer showrunner you know on this new version and he said he said i don't want to do this it's a no-win situation for Mm me i can't you know i can't make it what it was without Rod Serling or Buck Houghton. I can't do it. And I, I don't think I'm going to take this gig. And I, I am passionately said, oh, you have to do it, Ira. You have to do it because you can protect it. Mm. You can protect the franchise. It turned out that, you know, for the most part, network notes and the tone that they wanted to inflict on the Twilight Zone, which they, the network dubbed as, hip hop <laughs> they oh. <laughs> wanted the show they want yeah they wanted a hip hop version of twilight zone and you know uh, ira fought them tooth and nail to the best of his of his ability but as he started he had only done a couple of episodes they only had a couple of them in the can and he and I were talking. I think we were at my house. We were at my house. And I said to Ira, I said, hey, wouldn't it be interesting to find out what was going on in Peaksville, Ohio with Anthony Fremont 40 years later? And he went, yeah, that would be interesting. And that was it. That was it, right? It was just a, we're just sitting around, you know, having a gin and tonic or something. And uh, that that thought came out. Mm-hmm. And about about a week later, Ira calls me on the phone and he goes, they want to do it and they want to do it right away. And I said, they want it. Who? What? He said, the network wants to do a sequel to It's a Good Life and they want to do it right away. And it was kind of this like, are you kidding? You know, I was, that was an, I, I was, I was just kind of saying, wouldn't that be cool? I wonder what would happen to him. He said, look, you write up your thoughts Mm -hmm. and I'll write and I'll write up my thoughts and we'll exchange them. I did. And he did. And uh, in his thoughts, as we all know now, his thoughts included, you know, Anthony's daughter, Mm -hmm. which he insisted from the beginning would be played by my, by Liliana. And she had more power than Anthony. And, uh, regardless of anything that I had, which we incorporated a little bit of in the bowling alleys, bowling alley scene. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it, we ju- I just read Iris and went, oh my God, this is great. But I was scared mm. to mess with it. You know, I was scared to kind of go back to that. And what if it was cheesy? And what if it, you know, did, would I have messed with something that was classic? Would I, would it look bad to do it? All, all of that, those thoughts were very alive in my mind until uh, Iris said, I think I can get Chloris. Wow. And I went, find out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and Chloris 
who I had stayed in touch with over the years. Uh, her son was a musician that I worked with quite a bit. And um, she's just, she was such a unique and bold character, but the greatest talent, nobody better that mm -hmm. I've ever worked with. I mean, you know, I worked with some greats and, and I'll put some right up there with her, but nobody better because Cloris when any actor, whether you're six years old, first time I worked with Cloris was I was six and it was my first leading starring role. And uh, at six, she taught me so much, mm. so much uh, because Cloris won't, wouldn't, excuse me, Cloris wouldn't accept anything except the best you could deliver. Mm -hmm. And she would help you find the best you had. Now, maybe you just weren't, you know, Lawrence Olivier or something. Maybe you just weren't the greatest actor in the whole world, but she would still get you up to whatever the top you could go. Mm -hmm. She'd make sure you went there. And what a blessing that is, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like playing and you've got the world's greatest drummer behind you and you know, you, you, you your groove cannot fall apart. <laughs> um, so when Cloris signed on, it was uh, it was a magnificent experience to work with Liliana and to work with Cloris again, to return to a project that we all felt, you know, obviously who can be objective, mm. but we all felt that uh, Rod Serling would have said, yeah, you know, we all thought he, he would have approved that. Yeah. And uh, and it was it was just just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And to see. Liliana's performance in that mm -hmm. the way she she was so great and holding all of her own with those scenes just her and Cloris oh my god you know it just makes you burst with with pride and love um, I, I just have one more question before I let you go if that's okay Bill sure sure I mean, they, they brought back the Twilight Zone a couple of years ago with Jordan Peele had they knocked on your door and said Let's make it a trilogy. Would you have considered it? In a heartbeat. Wow, really? As a matter of fact, I told my, I requested of my agent that uh, they let them know that. Mm -hmm. I never heard from them. I wish I had, you know, uh, I wish I had. I, 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 would, I would have enjoyed that very much, I think. You know, I mean, you, you never know what the plot might be or, you know, but uh, yes, I would. There's two characters I'm always game for returning to. And that's Anthony Fremont and Will Robinson. Mm -hmm. You know, even as an, I mean, I, I, I could find a lot of interesting things to do with a, with an elderly Will Robinson, mm -hmm. you know. And as far as Anthony goes, I mean, he may be immortal. Who knows? Well, if we never see it, maybe one day we could read it, you know, story, comic book. I, I hope I hope we see what that could be like one day, you know, I really do. Yeah, me too. Me too. Bill, I, I just need to tell you, you know, I've been doing the Twilight Zone podcast for 12 years now, and I'll probably do it for a couple of years more. And I've spoken to a lot of people uh, connected with the show, but I've always thought I really wish I could speak to Bill Moomy. That would just be the icing on the cake. That would, you know, really complete this thing for me as something that I've been doing for so long. And and here you are. So I just want to say thank you for your time. You know, thank you for being such a great ambassador for, you know, all the shows that we love that you've been in. And, you know, thank you for making my dream come true by being able to speak to you. Thank you so much. 
Well, it's been my pleasure. I had a real good time. <laughs> and and I, 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 I'll give you a, a pass to get out of the cornfield free. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bill. Cheers. So Bill's book is called Danger Will Robinson, The Full Moomie, and it is available at All Good Booksellers. And I will put links in the show notes where you can go directly to that. So what a pleasure that was. You know, I, I said earlier on that Bill Moomy is a great storyteller and I'd heard him mention some of these stories before, but it's, it's a mark of a good storyteller that every time he tells them, he just fills them with such life. And even if you've heard those anecdotes before, you just can't help be transfixed by them. You know, I mentioned this kind of being mission accomplished for the the sort of interview element of the show, and and in a way it is, and that's not to say that there won't be another interview on the show. In fact, in fact, the next episode features an element of interviews with someone who I'm very much looking forward to speaking to. So chances are there will be more interviews on the show, you know. But as I've said in the past, I'm probably not going to be chasing them anymore like I used to. But if something lands in my lap that I really can't ignore, then I'm certainly going to take up that opportunity. So you have been a patient audience. This has not been a great year for the Twilight Zone podcast coming out, uh, even on a monthly basis. Now, they come out when they come out. That has always been the case, and I think everyone kind of expects that by now. But this year has been a particularly uh, busy one, and I've found it very difficult to get the show out. But thankfully, I think the tide is turning. And once I do get my next episode out, which is about Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, I think I will be on good ground to... Not necessarily get them out quickly, but certainly get them out more regularly. So I thank you for your patience and I thank everyone who stayed supporting the show on Patreon. That content has still been coming out because it's it's a different type of content. You know, it's not as time intensive as the Twilight Zone podcast. But if you want to head over there and get a, a whole load of podcasts in the meantime about things like Night Gallery twilight zone commentaries that i've done uncut interviews there's a whole load of stuff over there then go to patreon.com slash twilight zone podcast but the next time i speak to you we'll be sitting at the airport waiting to board that plane for a nightmare at twenty thousand feet Thank you.